How much fun is that? Isn't that great? That's the best thing ever. We uh, baptized 20 folks last Sunday after the picnic, and we had a wonderful, wonderful time. It was just spectacular. So we're celebrating, rejoicing, and all of that. Hey, welcome to 1115 Church. Thanks for being here. It's great to see you. Now, you notice there are seats open. There are open seats. And so that means you can, everyone in this room could invite someone and bring them with you next week, and we have room for everyone, right? So that's what this is about. We want to include everyone God calls to uh, join us. So we're excited about that. We uh, continue with this theme that we've been on now for a couple of weeks, a call to prayer. And I want to preach again from Acts chapter 12, this powerful, miraculous story of answered prayer in the life of Peter. And I hope it'll be an inspiration to you. Turn then, if you have your Bibles, to Acts 12. I'm going to read the first 24 verses there. As is our custom, I'll invite you to stand to honor God's Word. This is the Word of God for us today. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, him, he put him in prison and handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. They went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now they joined together, sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne, delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But 
The word of God continued to spread and to flourish. I mean, God inspires today through this powerful story. You may be seated. Thanks so much. This is going to come as a shock to many of you, but I was, I was rejected for ordination when I first attempted it years ago. I hadn't learned how to play the game and, and uh, answered a little more too truthfully and forthrightly, and so uh, the, the powers that be at the time delayed me from being ordained. And not only delayed me, but then dispatched me to my first appointment, which was a little two-point circuit, two little churches. One was Union Chapel out in the cornfield, and the other one was Mill Grove, just up in Blackford County. And, and frankly, it was, uh, it, was, it was the bottom of the barrel. No disrespect to Union Chapel, Cornfield, or Mill Grove. I mean, it was just the lowest rung on the ladder that you could be assigned to uh, as a Methodist. And so... That's where they started me because they, they were concerned about me. Now, I, I reminisce about Joseph and his story. Remember Joseph from the Old Testament? His brothers disdained Joseph. They, they, they didn't like him because Joseph's dad liked him best. He was the favorite, so they disdained him for that. And they sold Joseph into slavery. Many years later, after much hardship in Joseph's life, God elevates Joseph to a grade of place of great influence. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt, and his brothers now and his family stand before him. They don't know who he is, but Joseph recognizes his family all these years later. And Joseph says to the, to the men, his brothers, you don't know who I am, do you? And they say, we only know you hold our life in your hands. And Joseph said, I am your brother. And it sobered them up. They were scared, of course. And Joseph said that he was going to let them live and bless their lives. And then these words, watch this, Joseph said, what you intended for harm, God has meant for good. What you intended to use to hurt me and harm me, God has used to actually bless my life. And so in retrospect, I can look back on my tenure here at Union Chapel and say, you know, being assigned to Union Chapel United Methodist Church was the best thing that ever happened to me. What some people intended for harm... God intended for good. Isn't that great? Now, a few, a few months, now we're talking about prayer. A few mo- months after I had arrived here, I finished a sermon one morning. I was 26 years old, and three little old ladies approached me, little grandmas. Their names were Opal, Gladys, and Flosie. The names have not been changed. Opal, Gladys, and Flosie. Opal was the spokesperson for this triad, these musketeers. And with a big smile, she said, Pastor Greg, The three of us want you to know that we have been meeting together on a fairly regular basis for the past 30 years, and the reason we've been meeting is for the purpose of prayer. We've been praying that God would do something unusual in our church. And we, and then another of the three piped up and said, yes, we're believing that God will do something that no one can explain except that God has done it. And then the third one said, yes, and we want you to know we are praying for you. And I just thought, how nice is that? How sweet is that? But in retrospect, here's something I've learned. It could be that God cannot resist the prayers of grandmothers, no matter what they pray for. Can't resist. And so here they were praying, and not just a little bit, but over the course of 30 years. It is a profound statement of importunity and persistence in prayer and what God has done. Now, you should know that Opal and Flosie are in heaven today. Opal and Flosie are gone. But I imagine they're still praying. 
And Gladys is still alive with her husband. Beth and I just recently, about 10 days ago, went to visit them. They're living at Westminster. Laverne is 95 years old, and Gladys is 94 years old. Gladys is four feet something now. She keeps getting shorter, and she weighs 76 pounds. And there she is, 94 years old, and she was wearing this big, heavy blanket, sitting in her easy chair with this blanket trying to stay warm. And we had a lovely conversation. We reminisced a lot. You should know that for years, I would give Gladys my itinerary. Anytime I was doing any kind of special ministry outside of the church, I would make sure she knew where I was and what I was doing so she could pray for me. And, and so I've just relied on her. And she, she assured me that she's still praying for me and for us. And we, we uh, loved on each other for a little while, and, and we held hands and prayed, and we kissed each other's face. And then Beth and I kind of stepped back on the other side of the room. We're getting ready to leave. And here was Gladys, and, we, and she, she brought her hands up over the top of her blanket like this. And her hands are kind of gnarled from arthritis, you know, 94 years old. You know, she, it, was, it was this that she wanted to do. But this is what it looked like. And she, and she looked up at us, and, and with a smile, she said, The Lord bless you both. Just like that. And I have to tell you what happened. The energy of God's presence came across the room and washed over us. I, I felt it on my body, and I got goosebumps. I turned to Beth, and she began to weep. And we thought, something is happening here. Something is happening. We know that God calls us to prayer. And we know that God hears our prayers. On your outline, you'll want to write that down. He hears your prayers. There's a time for nice praying. And then there are other times that we need to get in there and really wrestle with God, really contend with God. And God invites us into that relationship. He wants us to get in there and just prattle with him. You know, give and take. Lord, this is what's going on. This is our need. This, please uh, intercede. Please send a miracle. Extend your hand of grace. And God calls us into this kind of relationship with Him. Our father, John Wesley, in the Methodist movement, he had this comment about prayer. I'll put it up on the screen for you so you can see it. He said, there are some things God will not do unless limited human beings pray. Isn't that something? John the Revelator in Revelation 5.8 says that there were 24 hours, uh, elders, they were all holding harps, and they also were holding golden bowls it says, filled with incense and also containing the prayers of the saints. Golden bowls. So, so these, are, these are representatives of the church in heaven, these 24 elders. They have harps and these golden bowls filled with incense, which contain, the Bible says, the prayers of the saints. And what that means is that when you pray, your prayers are collected. They're accumulated in, the, in heaven. And what does incense do? They, it rises up. It has a fragrance. It has an aroma. So your prayers and my prayers, if you can imagine this, visualize this, that they are collected in heaven by the saints and they rise up before God into the nostrils of God, into the consciousness of God, into the awareness of God, into the mind of God. Your prayers rise up before God into his awareness. This is an amazing reality. This is a holy privilege then that God gives us to interact with him in this way so that, so that he would call us a prayer and then hear what we pray. 
I just, I just am stunned every time I think about that. Now, here's a third thought. It's on your outline. God calls us to prayer. He hears our prayer, and God answers our prayers. Now, this is really good news on top of all the rest. Here in Acts chapter 12, we have this amazing miracle of answered prayer. These men and women are meeting at Mary's house, and they're praying for Peter. They, they know James has already been put to death. Horrible, horrible persecution. One of the first martyrs. Here's James, the brother of John. And now Peter is going to be executed right after the Passover weekend. And so they are fervently praying and asking God, seeking God. Now, this prayer is greatly encouraging to me on a number of levels. One of the levels is that, hey, God answers prayers. These folks are calling out to God. Please deliberate our brother Peter. He's deep in the center in the belly of this prison. He's got 16 guards around him. He's chained hand and feet. There are guards posted at the inner gate, guards posted again at the outer gate of this prison. God, you're going to have to do a miracle to get him out of there. And so they pray, and I, I'm emboldened by their faith. That's pretty encouraging. But then when God does it, and he performs the miracle, watch now, this also encouraged me, they blow it. <laughs> they completely blow it. Because Peter's now free. He goes to this house. He knocks on the door while they're praying, oh, God, do a miracle. God, send an angel. God, extricate Peter. And the knock comes to the door, and Rhoda comes running back in. Peter, uh, Peter's at the door. And they go, would you stop it? That's not Peter. That can't possibly be Peter. I love that. That encourages me. Peter's going, would you let me in? That's a, that's, that can't be Peter. It's, it, it's, it, they spiritualize it. That must be his angel. Now, here's what I learned from that. Sometimes, listen now, you'll identify with this, I hope. Sometimes it is in God's great answers to our prayers that we find out how little faith we really have. Isn't that true? I mean, if you really had faith for the answer, then you wouldn't be surprised when it came. Now, here's the point I want to make. I want to encourage you. Here's the point. Look at it on the screen. Don't wait till you feel faith before you pray. Sometimes praying is its own reward. It wins the day. It brings the breakthrough. Sometimes just engaging with God brings the kind of grace that we need. So don't wait until you're all emboldened and, okay, I, I've worked it up now. I'm, I'm going to believe God for something great. Just get in there with God and talk with God and let Him nurture your faith as you go. And as you pray, your faith will, will grow along the way. So don't wait for great faith. Now, maybe God was going to extricate Peter from that prison without the prayer meeting at Mary's house. Maybe it was just coincidental. Maybe God was going to do it anyway. Maybe God was going to perform a miracle and, and take a little cornfield church out in the middle of Delaware County, Indiana, and do some great things through that church anyway without the fervent, persistent prayers of three grandmothers. Maybe so. But ladies and gentlemen of the jury, let me enter into evidence these facts. Number one, there was a need. It was a real need. It was a recognized need. Number two, people engaged that need in prayer. And number three, God did a great work. Now, these are facts. They're indisputable facts. The need was real. People engaged in prayer. And God did a miracle. We know those things to be true. Now, what if... What if we happen to live in a moment of time when God sees all the needs that we see? We live in a culture that is in great need. We live in families that have great need. Our individual lives are in need. Here we are in great need. That's a fact. And maybe God stands ready to perform a miracle, do something supernatural to meet those needs. And could it be that he's waiting for us to pray? 
Here's what I don't want to be. I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the missing link in God's work. I don't, want to, I don't want to be in a place where the need is recognized and God is ready to perform a miracle and all that's, all that's causing it to be delayed is my prayerlessness. I don't want to be that person. So I want to engage God. You know, you can, you can intellectualize this and rationalize this. Maybe this was going to happen anyway. God's going to do whatever he wants, no matter whether we pray or not. But the fact is God calls us into relationship through prayer. He hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. And so we hang on to that. Now put the bookends on this story in Acts 12. This story begins with the martyrdom of James. He's put to death by the sword. Some speculate that Herod killed him personally. And it's a horrible moment. Now on the other end, put the other book in there. Herod goes to Caesarea, gets full of himself because he's an egomaniacal. He's, he's crazy. He's a real piece of work. He's a horrible human being. We could talk about Herod. You'd be disgusted by him. And here he is. He gives a big speech. He's, all, you know, he's got all the regalia on. He gives this big speech. And the Bible says that because he didn't give praise to God, an angel struck Herod. This is verse 23 of, of Acts 12. And he falls down to the ground, is eaten by worms, and dies. I mean, that's pretty dramatic, don't you think? This, that's pretty gruesome. That's, that's out there. So on one hand, we, ha we, have, we have James who is run through with a sword and killed because he believes in Jesus. And on the other bookend of the story, we have Herod falling down and dying in a gruesome death. Now, what can we surmise from this? Well, listen, there are forces at work that sometimes we don't perceive. They are spiritual in nature. They're invisible to us normally. And yet they are, they are happening around us. And our limited worldview sometimes keeps us from appreciating the dynamics of all that's happening as a result of our spiritual engagement. I want to submit to you that prayer is a powerful thing. And prayer matters because prayer begins to change things in the world that's unseen and dramatic events can occur as a result of it. It's a powerful, potent thing. You have more influence in the world in which you live than you realize because of the power of prayer. It is, it is God's invitation to us to engage in that kind of authority and power. Now, it's interesting to note that in verse 7 of this text, that the angel goes into the prison, and the Bible says the angel struck Peter and said, get up, let's go, it's time to get out. And in verse 23, we, we hear the same, same phrase, an angel struck Herod, and he fell down and died. I'm just wondering if it's the same angel. He's the angel that strikes people. His mission is striking. He just, he just touched. How many, if, that, if you saw that angel, are you the striking angel? Yeah. How many of you would say, hold up, bud, and learn your power, understand your mission before you touch me? Because we don't know what happens when this guy touches people. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes our chains fall off. Other times, boom, not so good. The power of God present through prayer. Now, let me just remind you then, verse 24 of our passage, the last verse says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. It continued to increase and spread. Isn't that great? Isn't that good news? Now, listen, here's what we learn. After all is said and done, after all the tyrants have paraded across the stage of human history, after all our brethren that can be martyred have given their lives, after all the bulls have been filled up with the blood of the saints, the word of God will grow and multiply. Have an ear for this saint of God. We live in a culture now that is unraveling. 
It seems like all of the fiber, moral fiber and spiritual grit of our nation is eroding and unraveling. We wonder if society itself is going to implode. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very dramatic period of history, and we wonder what's going to become of us. Let me just remind you of what's going to happen. We can let all the skeptics, all the scoffers, all the tyrants, all the persecutors raise up their anger against Christ in a mocking way and against the church in a mocking way, and the Word of God, listen, will continue to increase. When it's all over, the tyrants and the skeptics and the scoffers will be gone, and the Word of God will remain. That's what we know. And we can take great confidence in that. So prayer just engenders us into that stream of God's provision and victory and power to release into the world Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the great call that we have. Now, occasionally the devil will sneer at you. He'll come into your world. I know he does this, does this to me, he does it to you. He'll come into you and he'll say, look, I know the pastor's been encouraging you to pray. There's no point in praying. It's too late. People you care about the most, they're too far gone. That husband of yours, he won't listen. That wife of yours, she's not going to wake up. Those children, they're too, they're too far out there. They're too far from God. They're, they're, they're so steeped in, in a lifestyle. They're in, enslaved in bondage. There's no, there's no recovering them. There's no hope for them. That's, let me, can I give you permission today to reject that voice, to reject that word, to reject that as untrue? That's deceit. That's, that's demonic. That is not God. I want to remind you today that there is power in prayer. Intercessory prayer is the supernatural access that we have to the power of God. It sets captives free. It breaks bondages. It breaks strongholds. It heals the sick. It raises the dead. I believe in prayer. Through a praying, interceding, believing, and faith-filled church, there is nobody, listen, anywhere that cannot be set free. There is no chain that cannot be broken. There is no guard that cannot be put aside. There is no door that cannot be opened. Believe God, and you can change the world through the power of prayer. Let me tell you a story from history. 600 years ago in 1400 A.D., there was a man by the name of John Huss. If you've studied church history, you'll recognize that name. John Huss lived in what is now Eastern Europe, now Czechoslovakian, and he was ministering among a group of people from Moravia. And John Huss was teaching the Bible to them. He loved the Scripture, and he prayed with these people. The Roman Catholic Church at the time forbade him to do so. He, he persisted, and they labeled him a heretic, and they burned him at the stake. Horrible, horrible part of our history. But before he was martyred, watch this now, he predicted that the Bible teaching and praying that he had done with these Moravian people would be, and quote, this is his phrase, a hidden seed. Do you hear that? A hidden seed buried in the ground, and that one day it would spring up into revival. Now, fast forward 200 years, 1600 A.D., a man by the name of John Amos Comenius led Moravian Christians out of their native land where they'd been persecuted, and they were refugees now and would be refugees for the next 100 years. But before Comenius' death, Comenius predicted that the hidden seed that John Huss had prophesied about would spring up in revival in a hundred years. Now, Comenius died, and the next generation forgot his dream. 
But now fast forward those 100 years, as Comenius had prophesied. Now it's 1700 A.D., and there's a young man by the name of Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. It's quite a handle, right? But if you study church history, you know the name von Zinzendorf. He was born into a wealthy, aristocratic family. Now, now, now check the reference in history. History calls him the rich young ruler who said yes. Remember the rich young ruler in Jesus' day. Came to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you need to sell all you possess, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler said no to that invitation. Now in history, in 1700, we have Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He's a rich young ruler, and he says yes. He was a faithful Christian. He was brought up in the Lutheran church. And when Zinzendorf was 27 years old, he took into his home a single Moravian refugee. Before long, Zinzendorf had 300 Moravian refugees living on his estate. He becomes their spiritual leader. They all lived in a village called Hernhut in Germany. Under Zinzendorf's leadership, they all prayed together. They studied God's word together, grew spiritually together. And Zinzendorf began to take an interest in the history of these people, the Moravians. And as he was studying about their history, he came across a document that talked about John Amos Comenius and his hundred-year prophecy that in a hundred years, Huss's hidden seed would sprout forth in revival. This piqued his curiosity further, and he realized that the date of the prophecy from Comenius was exactly 100 years before that week. Isn't that fascinating? Just fascinating. Zinzendorf then calls the 300 Moravians together that very night. It was August 12, 1727, and they conducted an all-night prayer meeting. The next day is referred to in history as the Moravian Pentecost. August 13, 1727. And the Holy Spirit came down on that group of 300 Moravians in a powerful way. They grew from that experience an instinct for prayer. And they decided to start a prayer vigil. Now watch this. They designated a place of prayer in that village, Hernhut. They prayed in groups of three for one hour increments. So at any given hour, three people were praying together in the place of prayer. There are 168 one-hour time slots in a week. They filled all 168 time slots with three people per hour. Now check this out. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, three people were always play, praying in the place of prayer, and this prayer meeting went on for 110 years. 110 years. Do you know the kind of supernatural power that is released, unleashed, if you will, when you pray? 110 straight years. The Moravians' hearts began to burn with the things that touched the heart of God. Their hearts began to burn for unreached peoples of the world, people who had never heard about Jesus. And this is what happened to them. They began to send out missionaries. There were only 300 of them, right? But over a 15-year period, they sent out 70 missionaries. One out of every four of this group of Moravians went from their homes to some part of the world to preach the gospel to an unreached people. One of the churches that the Moravians started sent out 200 missionaries of its own. One of the Moravian missionary teams voluntarily sold themselves into slavery so they could identify with slaves and share the gospel with them. Wow, wow, big wow. 
The Moravians started the modern missionary movement. One historian estimates that the Moravians would be the largest denomination in the world, except that whenever they planted a new church, they gave it away to another denomination. Just kept going. One Moravian missionary team was on a ship headed for home from the American colonies in Georgia in 1736. Note the timeline. They were on this ship, and they were in the middle of, of the Atlantic Ocean, and a huge storm came upon them, and they were sure to perish. The captain of the ship said, prepare your lives, we're going to die. This band, this team of Moravians that night, circled up, holding hands, and they began to sing hymns. And great peace came to their heart. Peace in the midst of a storm, life-threatening. There was also a young Anglican priest on the ship that night. And this young Anglican priest had kind of washed out from the American colony of Georgia as a missionary. He was on his way home very discouraged, defeated. And fearing for his life, he later wrote that he was scared to death and that he had no assurance whatsoever of his own salvation, even though he was an Anglican priest. And he saw those Moravians who seemed to have the peace of God and deep assurance in the face of impending death. They survived the storm. And the next day, this young Anglican priest approached the team leader of the Moravian band. And he said, you all seem to be at peace when we were about to die. How is that possible? I don't have such peace. What is it you have that I don't have? And the Moravian leader said to him, we have placed all of our confident trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And because we have invited that finished work into our own hearts, we have assurance that whether we live or whether we die, we belong to Jesus. And we'll spend eternity with him. It so moved that young Anglican priest that two months later, on Aldersgate Street in London, England, he wrote in his journal later that he went to a house where they were conducting a Bible study from the book of Romans. And the leader of that Bible study opened up the commentary on the book of Romans written by Martin Luther and was reading the preface to the commentary. And the young Anglican priest wrote in his journal that about a half past nine, he felt his heart strangely warmed. Mm. And that he had trusted in Christ, in Christ alone for his own salvation. The name of that young Anglican priest was John Wesley. Wesley rose up from that heartwarming experience and with other experiences in the power of the Holy Spirit began to turn England and most of Europe upside down for Christ. One point in his ministry, he laid hands on a man named Francis Asbury and told him to go to the American colonies and preach the gospel there. And Francis Asbury landed on the shores of this continent and began to lay hands on other men known as circuit rider preachers. Their qualification was they had to own a Bible and a horse, be willing to die, preach prayer, die at a moment's notice. That was their, that was their job description. And these, these men out of this Wesleyan movement began to preach the gospel across the frontier. One circuit rider rode into what is now the state of Indiana and preached the gospel, planted a church. And now there are over 600 Methodist churches in Indiana. You're looking at a man who 44 years ago bowed his knee at the altar of a little Methodist church in Indiana and through the leadership of a Methodist layman named George Wicks showed me how I could receive Jesus into my life 
and have the assurance of my sins. And from that day to this moment, listen, we are all direct spiritual descendants of the Moravian and their prayer meeting. We are. We're in the spiritual lineage of the Moravian bands who prayed, called on God. I've never mentioned this out loud, but you know, over the years, we ask people to sign in when they get here. And if they're a newcomer, first time to visit to the church, we get as many of those names as we can. And it's in our database. and We try to keep connected with people. And over the past 30 years, as I say, I've never mentioned this number, but I asked the question recently, how many, how many people have we recorded who have attended Union Chapel at least once over the last 30 years? And the number is in excess of 50,000 people. 50,000 people. Here's what I know. There are 50,000 people in our community who have heard the gospel at least once. Because this is not something else I've never said out loud, but I'll say it to you this weekend. My goal as a leader of this church, is that every worship service conducted here, people will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as you have heard it this morning. And if you're here for the first time, and maybe this will be your only time, what I'm asking of you today is to consider this amazing love that God has extended to you. God loved you with an everlasting love and gave His only Son on your behalf. Your salvation and the assurance of your eternal life is not based on how good you can be in this life. It's based on the finished work of Jesus and the appropriation of that work in your heart by a simple step of faith. By saying, Lord, I receive this gift and I do it with thanksgiving. It is not something I earn and I certainly haven't deserved, but because of what you've done for me, I receive the love you offer. That's, that's the step that finds you incorporated into the family of God and given assurance for your eternal life. Friends, could I just say that we are still in the lineage of this dynamic intercessory movement of prayer. And if we will call on God and embrace Him faithfully and persistently, that I believe God has great things in store for us. I'm convinced that the best is yet to come. I don't think we have seen anything compared to what God wants to show us in the future. Their need exists. You know it exists. And God is a God who works miracles. Maybe the missing component is our investment in prayer. Last week, we talked about the five blessings. This is the call to prayer that we're in right now. Five blessings. Most of you got this in your bulletin. If you didn't, grab one of these on the way out at the information table. And this is simply five blessings for five neighbors for five minutes a day, five days a week for five weeks. And we're asking you to pray a blessing over five people. Write their names down. I challenge you to write their names down so you can specifically pray for people that you might be able to invite to come to our services. And the five blessings, you use the word bless as an acrostic. Pray for their body, their health, their labor, their work, their emotions, their, their peace, their social lives, their relationships, their spiritual lives, their salvation. Five minutes a day. Just engage in prayer. You don't have to have any faith. Just start praying. God will meet you at the point of prayer. And I challenge you to engage this call to prayer because God wants to do great things among us. Amen? All right, let's pray for just a moment. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this astounding miracle that you performed, extricating Peter from this horrible condition. And Lord, we thank you that you still have the power to set people free that there is no chain that cannot be broken, no bondage that is too strong, no door that cannot be opened. And I thank you, God, that as we pray these blessings over people we know, that you're going to set them free. Thank you, God, for that. 
Now we, we ask that you would embolden us, encourage us, inspire us, build our faith, O oh God, and help us to engage in prayer. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. And everyone said, Amen.